A scripture lesson today is from Hebrews chapter 2. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to make therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The word of the Lord. All right, good morning, you guys, and Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Specifically you, Ian. Happy New Year. Uh, And thanks, Parker. Uh, Again, morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, If you haven't met me, my name is Joe. Uh, I'm one of the elders here at Resurrection. Uh, Some quick notes uh, that I want to go through uh, before we begin. You've noticed by now the table behind me is not set. It's our normal tradition at ResPres to have the table set with bread and wine that we would celebrate the Lord's Supper weekly. As you all know, we're currently in a season of finding a new permanent pastor. I will say briefly, but happily, I believe we're nearing the end of that season. We have three really good candidates that we're interviewing, and the committee will have more news uh, to follow in the near future. John, our interim pastor, is out this week at home in New York, spending some well-deserved time with his family. In his absence, we've had a guest preacher lined up, but he sadly uh, fell ill this week, and he was unable to attend. Despite all this, we don't want to give up the habit of meeting together. We recognize that public worship isn't just a gathering of God's people with one another, but before all else, a meeting of the triune God with his people. He's here in the midst of us, and we, as a people united by our faith, want to glorify God in worship. Well, I'm here speaking, but you should know I didn't generate the sermon. John is preaching in New York today, but with all the moving parts and changes, he let us adapt his manuscript for today's service. It's my hope that it isn't my delivery or John's writing that bring you comfort and encouragement today, but rather the Holy Spirit that brings scripture alive to you today, in your life and in your circumstance, and it equips and encourages you. Let me pray. Father, thank you for being a a God who's with us, even today. I pray indeed that your spirit moves in us, that it quickens our souls, and it brings us a joy as a people that you love and have redeemed through Christ. I thank you for Jesus, our high priest, who would reconcile us to you and that he would call us brothers and sisters. Please be with me as I speak, that only Jesus is conveyed, and be with those who hear, that they would be receptive to your word and your spirit. Amen. Okay. So, as we've talked about earlier in the service, the church calendar tells us that we're in Christmas tide, and that today is the first Sunday after Christmas. 
There's 12 days of Christmas celebration before Epiphany. Despite what some carols say, today is less about gifting eight maids and milking and more about continuing to celebrate the long-expected arrival of our newborn king, Jesus. Also significant in our culture of the modern Western world, today is New Year's Day. It's a time to look ahead with expectation as to what 2023 might bring and to make resolutions that will help us become the human beings that we want to be. I hope I'm not the first to break it to you, but those resolutions rarely make it to lifelong fulfillment. According to the Discover Happy Habits website, after just one week, a quarter of those who make resolutions already fail to keep them. After six months, more than half have given up. And ultimately, in the end, only about 10% keep the resolutions they set out with in the new year. Roughly 9 out of 10 people that enthusiastically commit to make resolutions in order to improve themselves or their lives in the new year don't follow through with lasting change. They either forget, get distracted, or just lose hope for what they're trying to accomplish in the first place. Furthermore, promises to oneself, even if they are kept, they won't fix what ails us. Of uh, my friends and family that I have in my life, there's some that find themselves in a season of distress uh, in 2023. Uh, an old colleague of mine in November had to bury his daughter right before his 16th birthday last week. And this follows the death of his son, as well as their mother, a few years ago. And another uh, is coping with the news that despite multiple surgeries, after a lifetime of military service, that his body has deteriorated so much he's no longer medically fit to travel and he won't be able to visit his distant family or his kids or his grandchildren for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, uh, any New Year's enthusiasm or the draw of a new beginning that, would, that we would get from New Year's resolutions, it's not enough to provide the foundation and support that those people need. Simply the fact that we're turning a calendar over as one second becomes another isn't enough to provide the hope that they need right now. And frankly, it's not enough for you or for me when serious struggles invade and interrupt our life. And the one thing that we can all count on, because we still live in a fallen and a broken world, is that struggles will continue. They will. They'll, they'll interrupt and they'll invade our lives. Now, please don't hear me as throwing shade at New Year's resolutions. If if you want to go for it, please go do it. There's, if they help you become better human beings, there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But to use them as a source that provides genuine and ultimate hope that can bear the weight of the worst of our anxiety, our concerns, and our fears, they won't cut it. They will fail in this regard. We need to look somewhere else and the chance of a fresh start that comes with every passing year. Well, as a people who are still in Christmastide celebration, we look at what Christmas in this passage here in Hebrews 2 provides us. And it's exactly the source of hope and support that we need, especially when our lives stray far from our dreams, plans, and expectations. You see, in Christmas and in this passage, we have a narrative about the God of the Bible that is unique among all other religions. Christianity is unique and that is the only religion where the claim is made that God actually came to us came to earth, came to humanity. Most religions are all about how do I work my way to God? What do I need to do in order to please the being or the power in charge? 
In other religions, it would be below their gods, literally and figuratively, to calm down, to condescend, and to experience limitations. Instead of just firing off orders from a distance or sending platitudes secondhand, the God of the Bible himself, personally and experientially, entered into our physical reality. Christianity is the only one that says, according to the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is, the Word that was with God from the beginning, through whom all things were made, actually came here, and not only that, but also came here by taking on our human flesh and dwelt among us with a physical body in our physical world. Now that is a core tenet of the faith of Christianity. Christianity claims that God came to earth and took on flesh and bone in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Even more so, the Bible claims that Jesus, God incarnate, actually took on suffering and actually experienced the brokenness of this world and of humankind. He didn't come in the pattern of other great and powerful rulers, like kings and Caesars. He wasn't separated to relating to the rest of the world as they do by living in some castle or palace walled off from the rest of reality by wealth, security, and comfort, but rather came born in a manger to poor parents who were of a subjugated people, and then lived a life of suffering and hardship, and then died a horrible death. God would not spare himself from the experience of his own creature's broken and fallen existence, even though that state of brokenness and fallenness was caused and perpetuated by those very creatures' actions in open rebellion against its good creator. God allowed no separation between suffering and Jesus. Now, let me pause here for a moment. In our own lives, when is it that we find ourselves asking questions of God's intent? Sometimes, and if I'm honest with myself, rarely. When things are going splendidly, we might ask, why is God being so kind? Much more commonly, it's when things go poorly. We often find ourselves asking the question, why, God? Where are you? How could you let this happen? We want God to resolve the tension we sense between our belief in his goodness and his power to do something in the midst of sorrow and suffering. We're quick to challenge God when things don't go as we think they should. We want relief. However, instead of responding to suffering the way we want him to, his answer is to take suffering upon himself. Whatever the reason that God temporarily allows suffering, we cannot say that he doesn't get it, that he doesn't understand, or that it's foreign to him. Even more so than experiencing suffering is this unfathomable thought here in verse 10. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Here, we're told that Jesus himself is perfected through suffering. How did Jesus need perfecting? Not morally, no. The word for perfect here is telos. It's not perfect in the sense of being morally perfect, but more like a completion, like to fully reach one's goal and purpose. The writer here says Jesus, God incarnate, reaches his telos, that he became perfect through his sufferings. No other religion will say that. Now why? Why does God voluntarily take all of this upon himself? Well, here we see first in verse 10, it is in the process of bringing many children to glory. 
to restore and recreate the very images of God that they might properly and rightly fulfill their vocation to reflect their creator's good and just and creative actions in this world. The salvation of God's rebellious image bearers required God himself to endure suffering and in fact bear the full weight of sin, evil, and death upon himself. And he did so willingly. And secondly, here in verse 14 and 15, since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. The reality and existence of sickness and death is an intrusion to the experience of God's image bearers. Death is an outsider, and it's the final enemy. And to many, death still holds a tight grip of fear around their hearts. Our salvation's founder went through suffering and all the way through death and out the other side so that we might know our future. Jesus' victory is the promised future of the new creation. And more so, he endured the full blow of suffering and even death, that he might be able to fully empathize with us in the midst of our own sufferings and trials. You see, part of the intentions of the writer of Hebrews is to convince his audience that suffering as a follower of Jesus Christ is not an anomaly. It should not surprise us. It's not unusual. But rather, a life without suffering and a life of ease, that would be the anomaly. Suffering is part of the plan. It's necessary. Instead of suffering being an indication of God's absence, it's rather a proof of his presence. As theologian Leon Morse puts it, for Christians, as for their master, there is perfection in suffering. Little as we may like them, the fires of affliction are the place in which qualities of Christian character are forged. No one wants to suffer. No one looks forward to suffering. But the Christian cannot regard suffering as unmitigated evil. He can agree that it is an evil, but he also knows that born in the right spirit, it is the means of an increasing Christ-likeness. In that suffering that we experience, we have someone that we can go to who gets it, who genuinely understands. Not someone who simply assumes and considers what it would be like to be uh, experiencing our condition, but rather one who's actually been there and gone completely through it. This Jesus of Nazareth, the one born in a manger, and who had no place to lay his head, and who ultimately was abandoned by his closest friends and brutally put to death by his enemies, is one who calls his followers his own family, his siblings. And as our, and as our big brother, he is not at all ashamed of us. No, he's overjoyed to have us as brothers and sisters. He would go to every extent to pursue us. We see this in word and deed. He tells us that he won't lose a single one of us, that nothing can snatch us out of his hand, that he would leave the hundred for the one, even me, even you. Here in Hebrews, we find the good news, the news of which we can anchor our hope on. Regardless of what trials may come, we can be sure that this hope remains. As a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, you have a big brother who the Bible claims to be the king of all the cosmos, a king who has been crowned not for simply his legacy, but because of his suffering, and a king who now sees you as his family, as siblings, and more than that, is proud to call you his family.
Amen. Let me pray. Father, thank you for our brother Jesus, that he would humble himself so to be with us, that he would walk with us, and that he would take our guilt and shame on the cross so that we would never be separated from you. Thank you, Lord, not just for new beginnings, but for the new creation, one that you work on us now, and that we eagerly look forward to the coming of your kingdom fully and finally with the return of Christ Jesus, our King and our brother. I pray this in his name. Amen.